You can end up running organisations not by behaving like the strongmen or the demagogues or, or whatever, but actually being more in the Jacinta Arden mode, <laughs> who do want to combine strength and caring, because that's a sustainable way of being. Short-term strongmanism is not a sustainable way of being. I think that wonderfully childish, naive, you know, I want to grow up and save the world, Actually, I don't think that's ever left me. You obviously find different things that you can do that you think might help move things forward. I've stayed in business, for example, because I think, you know, the world needs changing. Business runs the world, whether we like it or not. So we need to change business. Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I get to understand about the nature of success, how it's achieved, what does it actually mean in work and, and also in life. Joining me on this edition of the programme is Rita Clifton. Rita can be accurately described as the guru of branding. She's had an illustrious career, which has included being vice chair and strategy director at globally renowned ad agency Saatchi & Saatchi, She's also chaired the global brand consultancy Interbrand before setting up her own business. Rita now has a variety of posts, including the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, visiting fellow at Oxford University's Said Business School and non-executive director of the Nationwide Building Society. And she's been awarded a CBE from the Queen in 2014 for services to advertising. Rita's also had a lifelong interest in the environment and sustainability, and she's been on the board of the World Wildlife Fund and currently is chair on Forum for the Future. On top of all that, Rita has authored a book called Love Your Imposter, Be Your Best Self, Flaws and All. It's a critique of modern business and a guide. Wow, I've got to catch my breath there, Rita. That, that's, a, that's a very impressive CV. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for that introduction. I'm very proud of many of those things. And you mentioned the CBE, which of course is lovely. I mean, maybe sometimes controversial, but the great thing about that was that my mum sat not 10 paces from Her Majesty the Queen when I was getting that award. And that was an incredibly high point uh, in my life, as you can imagine. So anyway, thank you for the introduction. Looking forward to the conversation. You mentioned your mum there, and it's so striking about your mum. I'm going to briefly praise you, and please correct me if I get anything wrong, but your your mum brought you, and you have two siblings, up. Your father suffered a work accident and couldn't work from when you were a tiny child, and then he died when you were 12 years old, and your mum worked, amongst other things, in a bakery, as a cleaner, incredibly hard. It sounds like she was an extraordinary figure, and indeed your dad, in the background, in driving you to be the person that you are. Is that correct? It is. I think it's correct for all of us. I mean, we are all shaped by our experiences. I mean, whether consciously or not. So certainly my father dying when he, when I was 12 was an incredibly and sadly very formative experience. And he was ill. He was ill. He was an invalid for all of the time I knew him because he broke his back when my mother was pregnant with me. I mean, what I also mentioned in the book, which was also formative, is that he happened to be a compulsive gambler. And on the surface, it might have looked all right. But of course, underneath, we were heavily in debt. So of course, when my father died, my mother found it very, very difficult to cope. So I was shaped by the fact she seemed to work all the time. 
I mean, she worked all the time in the home, in the shop, as a cleaner or a shop assistant or whatever. I mean, she was working all the time. I mean, equally, I was shaped by a teacher at school who, you know, took me under her wing because she felt I had some academic ability. And then, of course, over your working life and things like that, there are people that you meet and who mentor you, whether they know they're being a mentor and a role model or not. So we are all, aren't we, compound mixes of all these experiences and recognising that, recognising all of those things and how they drive you for good or ill and how to use that in a positive way. I think this is work that we can do to ourselves and that goes as much for imposter syndrome, which for some people could be debilitating, for a minority of people it can be debilitating. 70% of people suffer, experience imposter syndrome, 90% in the creative industries and that's a lot of people. Mm. Olivia Coleman, for example, talks about when she goes on set, she often feels she's going to get fired, but that fires her up to do even better performances. So, you know, these things can sometimes be useful and interesting drives. I take your point that I think it's almost in a way, it's a part of most people's characters. Almost everybody, I think, has certain insecurities. But you said there about Again, going back to something about your upbringing and the hard work, the sheer hard work that you witnessed in reading your book, one of the things I, there are many golden threads here, but one is the fact that you worked extremely hard. Is that, do you think, what ultimately decides if you are going to be successful or not? Just the sheer industry, the sheer graft that you put in to trying to make yourself a success, to trying to accomplish? Well, it has been for me. I don't want to sort of do a sales talk for Malcolm Gladwell here, but in the book Outliers, when he's talking about what it is that characterises people who get very good at stuff, he talks about the importance of putting in around 10,000 hours oh, yeah. of practice. This is like the Beatles and all the others, doesn't he? I exactly. Yeah. And so that's quite a lot of hours of trying to get good at stuff. And he talks about Bill Gates and uh, Canadian sports teams and things like that. Now, being in the office for all of those hours is different from actually thinking and focusing and practicing for a lot of hours. But I, I do think that industry and application is a really important part of succeeding, whatever that means, because clearly people's view of success and what it means, what it stands for, can be quite different. I mean, I wanted and felt the need to be successful in some way, shape or form. I had no idea what that might be. But what I was clear about, and because we had no money when I was uh, growing up, particularly in my teens, the need for security and the fact that my father was an addictive gambler, it made me quite risk averse and you know quite needy about making sure that there was some sort of financial security. And that was a, an important goal, at least for a while in my life. How do you define, therefore, I mean, you said once upon a time you thought about success in, in material terms or in financial terms. Sitting here and now, today, what do you think, this is a personal question, defines success? My definition of success is using your abilities to make a positive difference, making a difference to people, to things, I hope at some point to the planet. I mean, I, as a small girl, I developed a crush on David Attenborough. That was another formative experience that you know, made um, a small girl care about watching trees being cut down and you know, animals losing their home and you know, all of those, all those sorts of things. And you know, I think that wonderfully childish, naive, you know, I want to grow up and save the world 
actually, I don't think that's ever left me. You obviously find different narratives and different things that you can do that you think might help move things forward. I've stayed in business, for example, because I think, you know, the world needs changing. Business runs the world, whether we like it or not. So we need to change business. And I've always had one foot in the sustainability or environment camp on the pro bono front. And I've always had roles in mainstream business. And that used to be almost like a sort of three-legged race. I think what's been fantastic over the last five years, decade or so, is that actually these two things have become much closer together. Sustainability becoming an issue, a front and centre issue for so many organisations now and public awareness has never been greater. But the drive to make a difference, the drive to do something or say something or help people in a way that you do think makes a positive difference, that is a really, really important drive to me. And a big part of what I feel is success is helping people see that in themselves too. I mean, I really do feel strongly that Unless you want to see other people be or become brilliant, you don't have the right to call yourself a leader. That's why I find it very difficult when I watch people in senior positions, etc., who seem to be visiting their own back stuff, you know, their own lack of consciousness about their impact on others and visit that on the teams and the people who work around them. I'm sure you and I both know people who feel that they can only feel good about themselves if actually people around them do not or feel smaller. You define success there on one level, but also, I mean, I know in your book, you talk about, you know, you're the mother to two girls and you have your husband and so on. It strikes me that success, particularly for women, they're being pulled in various directions, you know, in having a, such as you have had, a top flight career at the same time as being a mum and it always feeling and I can say this, you know, my, my wife will say, and she's very accomplished, she'll say, you know, you constantly feel that you're failing, whereas I would deny that she's failing at any of that. But I think that the the definition of success, personal success and professional success, is much harder for women because there are so many demands, some might say vying demands, to succeed in so many different directions simultaneously. Well, that is true. I mean, I think there have been so many positive things happening. You know, the fact that actually you've got parental leave rather than just mother's leave. It's not just your responsibility as a mother to look after your children. I occasionally feel as though we're taking three steps forward and two steps back. But you know, there is definitely an element of biology in this, which is at the end of the day, if you are the one that gets pregnant and you're the one that gives birth and very often you're the one that breastfeeds and things like that, nurturing is one of the most powerful forces in nature. And if you've done that physically, that clearly makes a huge difference to the way that you're going to feel about this little thing that, that you've given birth to. And I must say, as a mother, you know, I feel viscerally, physically attached to my children. I feel worry about them all the time. I'm sure that we all do as parents. And of course, the additional thing is we do need more women running organisations. I mean, at the moment, the institutions of the world, the organisations of the world, the businesses, the nations, etc., they are wholly and totally dominated by the rule of men, if I can put it that way. And it doesn't seem to be going that well. You know, I really do believe very strongly we need a much better gender balance right at the top of organisations. And I don't just mean being senior, I mean being the person calling the shots, the chairs, the CEOs, the presidents, the prime ministers, etc. Because men and women are rather different. Neuroscience would support that. We have different styles, preoccupations, our brains often work differently. 
these things are not black and white, but nevertheless, they are quite distinctive characteristics in so many ways. And the reason why I wrote this book is if I can do anything to help many more women and many more very different types of people, different types of leaders, if if I can help them believe that they could end up running things is a huge motivation for me. I mean, you talked about goals and things like that. And my life goals have obviously adapted and changed over time. But when I was working full time and the children were small, part of my goal was to stay awake for long enough to do some of the things that I wanted to do. So, and I think it's very important, of course, that you choose the right partner, male, female, or whatever, and you both actually build each other and help each other to succeed. Or otherwise, you know, these are friends as well as partners. If you don't live with a partner, you do need to recruit the right people around you to make sure that actually you can contribute to them and they can contribute to you being happy and successful so it's so interesting hearing what you're saying about girls so I have two daughters also currently age 15 and 13 they say dad you know particularly the younger one very assertive and she says dad women are just better the world be a better place just look Angela Merkel of Germany Jacinda Dern look at them they're dealing with coronavirus much better than you men the point is taken and I think what's incredible is that I'm so pleased when I hear them talk that they don't see necessarily the barriers that previous generations of women necessarily saw. And I'm really hoping that those barriers are not placed in their way. I think that's true. And I think that the power of role models is extraordinary. And I think, again, one of the moments where I felt very proud and rather emotional in my career was when one of the women in my team, when I was strategy director, and I did have two small children, and obviously I was working... I was working very hard at the time to try and balance everything. But years later, when she had moved to another organisation and she was running it, she was an incredibly impressive and successful chief executive who developed amazing talent in her organisation. And she said to me, you know, the fact that I was in that senior role, doing what I was doing and having small children, it didn't even occur to her that she couldn't do it. And that made me feel really quite emotional and as though I had achieved something. And I think you know, giving off the vibes to my daughters about what's possible and what they can do if they so choose, I do feel good about that. I mean, you mentioned Jacinda Arden. One thing I love about her and her leadership and what it symbolises, she talks about being strong and kind. She can't see what the contradiction is there. And I could not agree more. If there's one thing that really, really irritates me is this whole, you know, nice guys finish last rubbish one of my daughters, when we were talking about this issue, she said to me in a sort of slightly puzzled way, I mean, why why wouldn't people want to be nice? Why wouldn't they want to be kind? And I just thought, you know, if I brought up a child who thinks that way, then I hope I've done something. Nasty guys tend to get sued or they get a company sued or otherwise, as you know, you know, a risk characteristic in failing companies is having an over-domineering chief executive where people are fearful about telling them the truth. But also, you can't bully people into giving their best, into trying to contribute as much as they can and give voluntary effort if you scare and bully them senseless. I mean, I, it's both sensible as well as being a better way of being and a better way of living. I agree with you completely, but I've also had like many people, a crisis of confidence recently, or despair even. You know, when I look at global leadership, you know, Donald Trump is no longer in the White House. 
And you say, here's someone who clearly appears not to be a very nice person and clearly doesn't have a compassionate style of management and doing business. And yet here he has become a highly successful individual and end up as you know the most powerful man in the world. And there are certain people one can think of in business in the UK and elsewhere who've got a reputation for being quite horrible people and have got billions of pounds in the bank. So, of course, I agree with you. I do agree with you. But you're also seeing these people out there who, to others, well, they look at them and say, well, take no prisoners kind of business. Being a bastard gets you on. And and if you're nice and compassionate, someone else is going to pick your pocket and get that deal, whatever. So I think we've all gone through such conflicting emotions in the last couple of years and seeing how what's been going on in the world. I do. And uh, you know, part of you goes, I do hope that these so-called strong men are satisfied when we're all sitting in nu- post-nuclear fallout bunkers. They yeah. really will feel proud that they've won, in inverted commas. I mean, it's obviously frustrating, upsetting and all of those things. And what I would say about that is that I talk a lot about the importance of being human in the book. What I mean by that humanity is about being you know, decent and making decisions that are for the good of broader humanity, which means about being able to live within our means from an environmental and sustainability point of view. But also there is an element about being human that's about the id, as we know, as well as the better parts of the human condition. And the id can be a very ugly thing and the id can be a very selfish, self-centred thing. And I think we've seen the triumph of the id joined with, combined with, the power of communication. That's what Mm. we've seen with Donald Trump. And just going back to ancient Greece, the birthplace of modern democracy, what was interesting there is you did, in theory, have a democracy and people would vote with stones and it was all guys, of course. In theory, it was a democracy. But as the historian Thucydides said, in practice, all the power was in the hands of its first citizen, that was Pericles, because he was an amazing orator. Mm. He was an amazing orator who could stir people to go to war and to do various things. And that's the power of demagogues. And that's the power of communication. So we do need to make sure that the good people, the decent human beings, are great communicators too, which is why I, again, I feel so strongly we need a new type of leader and give people the confidence that even if you've got human frailties and you worry about whether or not you're going to be good enough, this is a normal human thing. In fact, it's vital for empathy to recognise that you're not perfect, you have vulnerabilities, and to maybe open and share those with other people so you do create a sense of human connection. And you can end up running organisations not by behaving like the strong men or the demagogues or, or whatever, but actually being more in the Jacinta Arden mode, (laughs) who do want to combine strength and caring, because that's a sustainable way of being. Short-term strongmanism is not a sustainable way of being, as we know, and frankly, as we may have had demonstrated quite recently on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I've got a question for you. How can we, or how can I, most people, reconcile our private person who slump on the sofa with a packet of crisps and a can of coke right with our public face which is you know looking our best seemingly together never rattled calm and considered i mean is there any reconciling between that or have we've always got to play like a bit of a role when we're as it were on camera when we're at work well it's a really interesting thing about playing a role 
we all have different roles and positions in business and things like that. The important thing is that you do that authentically. I don't like that advice about fake it to make it because I think it encourages people to think about themselves almost as a sort of a third party construct, you know, like a corporate construct or an avatar. And I remember when I became chief executive for the first time, I was thinking, I need to behave more like a chief executive, you know, sort of chew concrete blocks of breakfast. Button down suits, the whole thing. Oh, suits and, you know, crossed arms in photographs and looking like a CEO, as I thought it might be the case. But actually trying to act in that way in the end made me a bit miserable. And you might be able to act for four weeks in a TV show, Mm. but day in, day out, you know, there was no substitute for being yourself. The only thing I'd say is there are certain aspects of ourselves. I mentioned the id factor. We've all got a bit of the id factor, clearly. And not everybody needs to know that you like hanging around in your dressing gown, eating crisps, watching you know, Homes Under the Hammer or rubbish daytime TV. They don't necessarily need to know that. How do you know? Are you spying on my house? Are you... I think we've <laughs> yeah. all got our own sort of personal <laughs> videos running in our heads, haven't we, about you know the, the sort of more iddy type aspects of being ourselves. And I don't think you need to parade that round all day. I mean, the fact we have all got worries and securities, you don't need to go and tell everybody all the time how rubbish you think you are because you want things to happen. And that's why the sense of understanding yourself and what you think you can do, your purpose, what is it that you can do uniquely? And what is it that you need? What are your goals, short or medium or long term? You may not be fully aware of them at any one stage, but certainly to think about those things so that actually what you can do is get clear about yourself and your goals and then make sure that what you're doing, what you're learning, how you're presenting yourself, how you're communicating, all these things need to be coherent or trying to help get you into the role that you know you can play to make the biggest difference. So that's why I say, you know, be your best self, flaws and all. Tell me, for you, what you define as your greatest success, be that personal or professional? Well, obviously, if my children ever listen to this, they need to hear, as I'm sure they do know, that they are by far my greatest achievements. I mean, in terms of being decent human beings and so on, there is really no substitute for that feeling. But I I think that my greatest achievement is when I look at the people that I work with over the years, some of them I've recruited, I recruited, I train them or develop them and so on and see them be successful and see them be good leaders. I think as far as professional, you know, the professional thing is concerned, obviously ending up running a business, even though I didn't love doing it as CEO, you can make things happen that you think are important. Getting equal numbers of men and women on the executive board, for example, you know, um, giving people personal bursaries so they could do some personal development. These have all been achievements that I feel particularly proud of. And I guess, frankly, you know, on the on the environmental and sustainability side, getting involved with some of the organisations, I think, really do make a huge difference, whether it's WWF or Forum for Future Now. I'm proud of Everybody who's been involved with these issues have, over years and years, helped to mainstream the ideas of sustainability and stitch them into how organisations view those things. And it's taken a lot of effort from so many parties. And even if you can play a tiny role in some of that, I think that's something that that we should be proud of. And, you you know, getting involved in transformation of businesses, you know, giving them you know, the pride to believe in what they're doing, you know, and sometimes really unexpected businesses like, you know, little wholesalers and startup businesses and things like that. I love 
again, the ability to understand what a, an organisation is about as well as people and help them be the very best they can be. All of these things, I get a huge kick out of them. Wonderful. Rita, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk. I certainly have learned a huge amount and I'm quite inspired, actually. Thank you. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you. So what can I take away from from hearing Rita there? And I think the thing which really stands out for me is the value that she sees in nurturing and mentoring other people. And I perceive that as also having very positive experiences herself. She spoke about a formative teacher at school as someone she looked to and who encouraged her to go on to university and and her mother, and also coming from difficult circumstances, how she saw it was so essential to apply herself and to work hard. So those, those two elements of providing a role model, getting a role model and working hard seem to be the ingredients that have propelled Rita Clifton and that, as she sees, can propel other people. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please listen to others in the series and and also subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, do share and rate this edition along with others. I'm Richard Myron. The producer on this particular edition is Anouk Mie. It's been an Earshot Strategies production. All the best. Music.